I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Protein misfolding is an underlying issue for many diseases, including lysosomal storage disorders and some neurodegenerative conditions. When a protein misfolds, its three-dimensional structure is disrupted and it can no longer function properly. Game Therapeutics is using its AI-driven discovery platform to identify novel targets to fuel a pipeline of therapies that focus on enzymes involved in rare genetic diseases, but that also share genetic profiles with more prevalent ones. We spoke to Matthias Alder, CEO of Gain Therapeutics, about the role protein misfolding plays in a range of diseases, Gain's platform technology, and its lead experimental therapy in development to treat Gaucher disease. Matthias, thanks for joining us. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about gain misfolding proteins and the potential to use small molecule therapies for serious conditions where protein misfolding is at the root. Let's start with protein misfolding. What's the relationship between the shape of a protein and its function? Uh, so the way we're, what we know about proteins is that they are expressed by a gene and they go through a transformation. These are not static objects in, in a cell, but they have sort of, they're able to move and, and, and modulate themselves in terms of their, their shape. And proteins in order to actually exert the function that they have, whatever that may be in a particular cell or, or biological process, they need to have the, 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 proper, the proper form and shape in order to, to exert that, that function. So that's the, uh, a normal protein properly folded and, and is able to exert the activity that it needs to. Well, what happens biologically to cause a protein to become misshapen? That's a, obviously a good question. There's a number of, there's not a single reason for, for that to happen. Uh, we know that in, in the cell, there is a protein quality control system. So even in a healthy cell, that is, and the job of that quality control system is to remove misfolded and dysfunctional proteins. And that exists in every cell. And uh, so even in normal cells, there happens to be, it occurs that a protein that is expressed by a gene turns out to be not to working properly and be misfolded. And then it gets degraded and removed by that protein quality control system in the cell. Now in, in uh, disease, uh, in diseased cells, where there is, it, it's not working properly because there is something not going right in, the, in, in, in that cell. The origin of that dysfunction can be a range of different um, causes. It could be just general aging and some kind of inflammatory process that happens in a cell that causes ultimately a, a protein to not 
work properly and be misfolded. Um, but very often it, it is actually a, a, a genetic mutation. So the gene that expresses uh, a, a protein ends up somehow getting having a mutation and as a result expressing uh, a misfolded and, and dysfunctional protein. I can think of both genetic and infectious diseases where protein misfolding is implicated. What happens in these cases? And is there any sense what percentage of these conditions have a genetic root or are there other causes that might be at play? I would probably, I, I couldn't really quote you a specific uh, percentage. We know that in most, most rare diseases are caused by genetic mutations um, that occur rarely, but have sort of a, an effect of causing a pathology in a particular, in, in a patient. Um, in, in terms of the, the numbers, it, it, it varies. Obviously, rare diseases are rare, and so it doesn't affect that many people. Nevertheless, these are very devastating diseases that are worthy of being uh, pursued and looking for treatment. That, that's one of the missions that we have here um, at GAIN. GAIN's developing a, a pipeline of therapies that focus on enzymes involved in rare genetic diseases, but that share genetic profiles with more prevalent diseases. You're, you're looking at a broad set of indications, but a, a number of different lysosomal storage disorders, including Gaucher, GM1 gangliosidosis, and Krabby. Let's focus on your work around Gaucher. For listeners not familiar with it, what is it? So uh, Gaucher uh, disease is, is a rare uh, disease uh, caused by a mutation of uh, a gene called uh, the GBA1 uh, gene. It's, uh, it occurs um, in, in a small number of, of children, so it's a childhood uh, disease, and it, it takes different forms. So there is different types of uh, Gaucher disease, depending on what the manifestations of the disease are. There is a Gaucher disease type one, which primarily shows up in different um, organs of, of, the, of the, uh, the, the, the patient and, and results in, in, in organ uh, dysfunction, be that the spleen or, or other organs. Um, there are also then Gaucher type two and type three, which are uh, where the, the the organ in that's implicated is actually the, the brain. So this is also called neuronopathic uh, Gaucher disease. And so there, the manifestations are just um, development uh, deficits, cognition deficits in these patients as a result of that genetic mutation that causes the expression of a dysfunctional enzyme that plays a critical role in, in the cell system. So there are enzyme replacement therapies for some of these lysosomal storage disorders, including Gaucher. How effective have they been? Uh, these enzyme replacement therapies are actually quite, quite effective. Um, and you see uh, patients who are treated with these enzyme replacement therapies actually living full lives way into their adulthood. Um, the issue or the, the problem with these enzyme replacement therapies is that 
they are not able, these therapies are not able to cross the blood-brain barrier. So while they work for Gaucher type 1, where the where the impact of the disease is, is shown in various organs other than the brain, they don't work for a Gaucher type 2 and type 3, where the primary effect of the disease is, is shows up in the brains of patients. And so these are the patients who are currently do not have any available therapies. Uh, and that's also the, the area that we're focusing on uh, with uh, our uh, program. And in terms of the the treatment regimen, how, how much of a burden is that on patients? Um, it, it is, uh, I guess it, it, it is a burden uh, because it's, it's repeated injections that they have to have to be repeated on a regular basis. Um, it is obviously beats the alternative if you're on the enzyme replacement therapy and it works. I think uh, it, 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 you know, you're, you're able to actually manage the, the manifestations of the disease in, in Gaucher type, type 1. And so that's why the, uh, there is actually a high level of, of, of uh, patient adoption and persistence in terms of sticking with, with the treatment. Um, for uh, Gaucher type 2 and type 3, as I mentioned, there are no current therapies out there. Um, but what we're doing at GAIN um, is we're developing a small molecule therapy that crosses the blood-brain barrier that it can be administered orally, so like with a pill. So that's a very low burden on the patient um, for uh, taking that, that therapy once we get into, into patients uh, in, in, in a few, you know, the, the, the next phase of clinical development. You're targeting the... GBA1 gene in your experimental therapy for Gaucher, you're targeting the same gene in your treatment for Parkinson's disease. What's the relationship between these two conditions and are you using the same drug for both of these indications? So, so uh, yes, GBA1 is the gene that we're, uh, that is the so main focus right now in terms of, uh, of our therapy. Uh, we're not actually a, a gene therapy, so we're not actually um, acting on the gene itself. What we're doing is we are acting on the enzyme that is, is expressed by that gene. And if that gene is mutated, the enzyme uh, that, that's called G-case expressed by the GBA1 gene is misfolded and dysfunctional. And what we are doing with our small molecule therapies, we're binding to that misfolded enzyme, stabilize it such that it survives that quality uh, control system in the cell that I had mentioned before. And as a result, that enzyme is able to get into uh, the place in the cell where it needs to do to do its, its to perform its function, which is to remove toxic materials from the lysosome, which is the waste bin of the cell. And binding to that small uh, to that enzyme with our small molecule ensures that it can get to the right place and perform its job, which is to remove toxic materials from the cell. And as a result, we're restoring a healthy cell that survives. And as a result, we're able to interrupt the disease process, and it gives us the potential to slow or even stop the progression of the disease with our therapy. So in Parkinson's disease, are you saying that same toxic accumulation in the lysosomes? 
yes. And in fact, in, in Parkinson's disease, and Parkinson's disease also is, is heterogeneous. So there's, a, there's different factors that ultimately can cause the development of Parkinson's disease symptoms. What we're focusing on initially is on the, the portion of Parkinson's patients who have a mutation of that GBA1 gene. And it's the same gene that we're seeing in, in Gaucher disease and the same enzyme that we're targeting. And in fact, it's the same molecule that, that applies to both Gaucher disease and uh, Parkinson's disease. So before we talk about the, the drug itself that's in development, I, I thought it might be useful to explain a concept in lay terms for, for listeners. What is an allosteric enzyme? So uh, if you're thinking about uh, a protein um, in a cell, it has a job to play. That's why it's there. And it gets either activated or inhibited by um, a natural ligand, a natural binder that exists in the body that goes to that protein and binds to what is, what is the active orthosteric uh, binding site. That, that's the normal binding site and current therapy of, of a protein and current uh, therapeutics, molecule therapeutics, try to act on that um, active uh, binding site, that ortho or orthosteric binding site, and either displace or enhance the, the activity of the protein by binding to that active binding site. Uh, GAIN has actually a very um, unique uh, discovery platform, drug discovery platform, computational-based that allows us to scan the surface of proteins and find binding sites for small molecules that are not the active binding site, but any, any place else on the protein surface. And any binding site that is not the active or ortho, orthosteric binding site, that is, the, is called an allosteric uh, binding site. And so what we're doing with our small molecule here uh, is actually quite unique and in, enabled by binding to that allosteric uh, binding site is stabilizing uh, that uh, protein by binding to that allosteric binding site and as a result restoring and uh, causing a gain of function of that of that protein of that enzyme and that's gain of function gain therapeutics that's actually the, the origin um, of, of of the company name Walk me through your your platform technology. What what is the starting point? Do you begin with with a, a target protein? Yeah, so it's it's a computational. So it's a it's a drug discovery platform that is set up on uh, based on computational models. So it's computer based, um, and it it gives us allows us to predict uh, binding sites on proteins or uh, allosteric binding sites as well as uh, finding uh, vir through virtual screening small molecules that bind to those um, novel binding sites. And as a starting point, the only thing we need is a 3D structure of a protein. And these 3D structures of a protein that we use as a starting point for working on the protein with our uh, modeling system uh, can be either one that is derived experimentally. There are exper experimental methods like cryo em you know crystallography and things like that that allow you to see the 3d structure of a protein there are at this point also 
AI-based models that predict a 3D structure of a protein based on the 1D amino acid sequence. And these are actually very powerful um, AI tools that, that have a very high predictive value of what the protein ultimately looks like. So, for example, Google set up a company called DeepMind and they developed this open source database or tool where you can enter a DNA sequence and it creates ultimately that it gives you that shape of that protein. And uh, so one can use either an experimentally derived structure or an AI derived structure to um, as a starting point. And then we're investigating the surface of that protein with our models, which are actually physics-based. So we're not using AI directly to look at the protein surface and find these novel binding sites. We're using a physics-based approach, very tangible, very practical, looking at the binding energy of our molecular probes on the protein surface. And as a result, in getting a very, uh, you know, good idea about where are the most interactions of our molecular probes with the protein surface and which, which are potential hotspots and binding sites that we can exploit for, for pharmaceutical intervention. And then we take that binding site that once we have identified one on that predicted one on, on a protein model, we're running then a virtual screening process that allows us to find small molecules structures that binds to that uh, binding site. And then we take these, once we find these binders, we take about of the thousand or so that we typically find in a screening campaign, we take about the 100 that we believe are most suitable for, for pharmaceutical development and test them in real life experiments. Because what you're getting from a computational drug discovery a system is really a prediction of, of binding and effect. And you need to obviously then confirm that in real life experiments. I, I don't have a problem, you know, imagining a misfolded protein or what its correct shape should be. But what is a small molecule drug doing to take a misfolded protein and get it to conform to its proper shape? Mm. Uh, it, it, typically, um, you know, what what we have in in our uh, cis, uh, with our model it's 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 actually a molecular dynamic model so the protein that we're investigating in our in our platform is moving around as as it does in 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 real life in a real cell and so if you have a misfolded protein you need you need to find the confirmation of that protein that when you're binding at a specific spot on that protein surface it creates like a tether, like a a, a, a a break or something. It prevents the the protein from going into its misfolded shape, and that's essentially what we can do with allosteric binding sites and small molecules that bind there. You bind anywhere on the protein surface. You look at where it binds, and you find a small molecule that binds there and stabilizes that protein in the proper conformation that then allows that protein to go on and do its job as we're doing with uh, our target uh, uh, enzyme target protein GKs. In the case of Gaucher, what is your experimental therapy? Well, in, in the case of Gaucher, so the, it, it's the same as in, in, in uh, GBA Parkinson's disease. So we're looking at 
as, as in, for both rates, it's, it's the same uh, small molecule. So that that binds to uh, that G case enzyme that is misfolded as a result of a genetic mutation um, in your in of the GBA1 gene. In Gaucher patients, uh, that is a, a homozygous mutation. So both alleles are are impaired and, and have a mutation. And as a result, it's actually a more severe form. So Parkinson's disease is, Borchet disease is a more severe form of Parkinson's disease and occurs early in, child, in, in, in the lives of these patients in childhood. Whereas in Parkinson's patients that, uh, that have that genetic mutation, it's a heterozygous mutation. So only one allele is mutated, which means it's a milder form of that same disease mechanism, that same disease process. And as a result, it shows up much later in, li- in the lives of these patients. In Parkinson's, you typically get, you know, when you're 60s and 70s, much later in your life. Well, what's known about it from the studies you've done to date? Um, what is known and what, what we've been able to do with our small molecule is, is essentially it prove out uh, preclinically, both in cell-based models and in animal models, the full uh, mechanism of action uh, uh, that we have, that we're predicting here. So what we have shown in our in our assays and, and models is that we, with our small molecule, we're binding to GKs, that's the enzyme expressed by that misfolded uh, GBA1 gene. So we're, we have evidence that we're binding there. We have evidence that we are increasing the levels of that enzyme in the cell, which means uh, the degradation process is prevented. So we're, we're, pre- we're protecting that enzyme from de- degradation in, in the cell. We also have shown that we bring more of that of those enzymes into the lysosome, which is the waste bin of the cell, where that t- toxic material aggregates. And the job of GKs is to remove that toxic material. And so because we have more GKs enzyme going into the lysosome, we then have also shown that in the lysosome, we are actually eliminating the toxic materials that are building up. And as a result, we're seeing increased cell survival, a reduction of inflammatory markers, a reduction of inflammation, which means we have healthier cells. And in the the, the Parkinson's uh, uh, animal models that we have run, we have also then shown behavioral improvements of the animals who have received our our therapy. So we're seeing from the beginning, from binding to the GK's enzyme to ultimately the effect of having restored the function of that that GK's enzyme, we have at every step of the way, we have proof that the drug works as as predicted and as expected. What's the development path forward? So we're just about to... um, kick off our first uh, clinical study uh, with this molecule. And in fact, as the company, so we are, it's an exciting time for us. We are transitioning the company from a research and preclinical biotech company to a clinical stage biotech company. Uh, We have, uh, we just today actually had our quarterly report that we filed and we um, announced that we have filed the, the application, the dossier uh, with the, the ethics committee that it needs to approve the, the start of the phase one clinical study. And we expect to be able to kick off that, that phase one clinical trial 
in the coming um, couple of months. Gain went public in 2021. It raised 46 million as a preclinical company. Why did you decide to go public at such an early stage rather than going the venture capital route? Yeah, it's a, it's a question we get a lot, and people you know, always have the present uh, situation in mind if you're looking at capital markets. Um, at the time, Gain went public. Uh, there was actually a, a it was a very robust. Uh, market for for biotech in investing, and you had numerous uh, preclinical stage biotech companies uh, accessing capital uh, on the public markets. I mean, it, essentially, the IPO is is just you know accessing capital, bringing in money into the company to to advance uh, uh, the the activities and the programs that we've had. And because it was possible to do that in the public markets at that point in time. That's the path uh, the company chose to pursue. And we were lucky, right? It was at the back end of sort of the, the big hype that, that, that happened in biotech during the pandemic. We were able to tap into that, uh, raise that $46 million. And still today, we're actually working with the money we, raised, we have raised during the, the IPO and still have a, a cash runway uh, into the, the third quarter of 2024, so still, still, still very robust, which allows us to actually complete that phase one clinical study. Gain went public at $11. The stock is trading around three and a half, four dollars $4 today. What's the conversation with investors like? Yeah, I think the, I mean, everybody appreciates and understands that the the, the the share price dynamics and market dynamics that have occurred since 2021. We essentially went into a a deep freeze, a flight of generalist investors from biotech after the COVID exuberance um, dissipated. And we're not actually different than than most other biotech companies um, who went public then or even before that have seen a, a, a significant share price decline. We essentially moved with with the overall market. If anything, we felt up uh, a, a bit better than that than others. Um, the conversation with investors is like, look, at the time of the IPO, $11 was the share price, partly driven by, by exuberance. If anything, today, um, we're trading at essentially venture capital valuations, so pre-IPO valuations of the company, having though made incredible progress with our lead program and created incredible value, in, intrinsic value in the company by taking this program that was an early preclinical stage at, at the time of the IPO to being a clinical stage program today, having established a full mechanism of action, having passed the gate, you know, the, the hurdles of, of preclinical toxicology studies, having made the submission to, to the uh, ethics committee to start the clinical study. So we're inherently, intrinsically more valuable today. So if anything, we're actually a cheap buy. Well, how far will existing cash take you and what's the plan for raising additional capital? So we have a cash runway through uh, into the, the third quarter of uh, 24 based on the, the full plan that we have for the company. That's not just running a phase one clinical study with our lead program, it's advancing a backup program that we have just in case. It's it's uh, um, advancing our uh, 
rare disease programs, it's advancing our oncology programs. So all of that is baked into that cash runway. And we have the ability to obviously modulate our plans depending on the availability of, of capital. Uh, the, the main focus clearly now needs to be on the lead program, and which drives um, a lot of discussions that we have, um, as most biotech companies do, with, with pharma companies uh, in, and, and peer companies about partnering and license, licensing some of our programs and advance them as part of a collaboration as opposed to pushing all of these programs forward on our own with, with the money that we have raised. And so we have a lot of flexibility in terms of the cash runway itself. We have interesting partnering opportunities for our pipeline programs. And so we're, and we have been successful actually in attracting grant funding, including a recent grant of $2.8 million for our lead program uh, that we're taking into the clinic. Um, and so we're looking to continue to tap into these, uh, into grant funding, non-dilutive funding through partnering, and um, if need be at the right point in time, accessing public markets. Matthias Alder, CEO of Gain Therapeutics. Matthias, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, thanks for yours. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.